so Robert, I mean, it was it. Uh, I've been I've been um, as you know uh, involved as a party to this case brought by the Missouri and Louisiana Attorney General's offices against the Biden administration, and it's given me a front row seat to see the mechanisms by which you and I and many many other people were censored, why we were censored by social media companies. And I have to tell you, it's, it's absolutely infuriating. As, as an American, it's absolutely infuriating. Essentially, the federal government has a vast enterprise. And we know this because we read the emails of the federal government officials inside uh, you know, places like the Surgeon General's office or, the, or uh, even the White House itself, ordering social media companies about what to censor and who to censor. And it's not just emails. They have direct database links telling these companies, uh, if you don't do this, well, that's a nice company you have there, but we're going to, we're going to, we might take regulatory action against you <laughs> if you don't silence these people. Um, and, you know, I, I, I came to this country when I was four. I, I love this country for the, its commitment to free speech. We have like this f- fantastic First Amendment, which says Congress shall make no law and it's, it's, it's it, uh, restricting speech. And it, it's, and it, I always thought of it as like, America's civic religion, that this kind of thing should never happen. And yet, I've been at the pointy end of exactly this kind of suppression of speech. You have too, like as, as, you've, as you've described. Well, um, Jay, I, can, I, can I say something on that? You're, you've been more than at the pointy end. You were the first person, as I recall, invited in to Twitter HQ um, to start poking around in what we now call the Twitter files, isn't that true? Yeah, I think I was. Well, I mean, I think there were a couple of of uh, reporters like Barry Weiss right. who were invited. You were, you were the first they, scientist brought yeah. into that. Yeah, and, it and was so what after, I saw, and just 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 to give credit where credit's due, it was within one week of that, as I recall, weekend when you were invited in by Elon that my Twitter account was turned back on. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay, well, I, I'm not going to comment one way or the other on this, but, uh, you know, I, it was really nice when Elon took over. Um, uh, but, but, but I think, it's, why should it take a billionaire buying a social media company to store free speech rights? I mean, I think the, like the company, and Twitter, of course, Elon took uh, a big risk. I mean, I, I actually got to speak with him um, in late 2022 when this Twitter files uh, you know, uh, came to light. And uh, I asked him, you know, sort of, did he know that he was actually putting himself at legal risk? Because what happens is like Twitter, what Twitter was, was, did was illegal. Like the, the kinds of activity they did were leave themselves open to all kinds of, and so uh, all kinds of lawsuits, I think. And by taking over the company, Elon is, has essentially adopted the risk of those lawsuits. And then he's opening it up to the to, to, to for the for the whole world to see that what the of the malfeasance they had. For me, the key actor is the federal government. The U.S. federal government should not ever be engaged in these kinds of activities, especially on on things so important as the as the kinds of things we've been talking about this through this through this podcast, right? I mean, you had a point of view and your expertise. The public deserved to to have access to that, and you and you made a conscious choice. To make to to step out of the private settings that you were in, uh, and 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 say to the public, look, I think there's something's gone wrong. I made that same transition, Robert, as you know, uh, in 2020, 
and it's it was a it was a, it was a wrenching transition for me. Like I I actually liked my whole life. I was quiet uh, quietly publishing papers and talking with people, and it was you know it was intellectual and fun, and and uh, it, was, it was great. But it, but when I I thought that there were deep mistakes being made by public health officials, I thought the American public deserved to, the world public deserved to know that there were scientists that disagreed. I think it sounds like to me that's exactly what motivated you. Uh, in 2021 to, 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 to make that step. Um, so, so let's, let's try, we've, we've been so kind to us and generous to us with your time. I want to bring this conversation home, Robert, with a, with a discussion about how, how to fix this, uh, if it's possible to fix this. How, <laughs> <laughs> I was afraid that, I was afraid that was your reaction would be, yeah. but let's, let's try, let's try to like, think about this constructively. Okay. How can we fix this um, situation? How how can scientists so I, actually I, talk? I have I have put a lot of time and thought and talked to a lot of people about this, and it's actually the main focus of the last third of our book, "The Lies My Government Told Me" and "The Better Future Coming." And it is I I'm the one that uh, Tony Lyons, by the way, came up with the "Lies My Government Told Me" title because he thought that was going to sell a lot of books, for sure. Um, and I insisted that it was such a dark title, as often many of his books are these days, like the real Anthony Fauci. It's like, you know, people complain they can't get through with that without wanting to put a bullet in their head. Um, and uh, and I wanted it to have a positive spin on it. I really don't like closing up my lectures with, with darkness. I always try to give people hope. I always try to find a silver lining. And uh, in the book, we have a number of chapters where we talk about what potentially can be done with the federal government, um, the legal aspects behind it, enable the administrative state, what's going on in the Supreme Court, the logic of Schedule F that uh, um, Mr. Trump uh, finally successfully managed to push through uh, the courts and was about oh, to be schedule, implemented. Just the Schedule F, that's the, that's the, right, the uh, uh, executive Re- action reclassification. that allowed- yeah, reclassification of employment status because basically m- many people are not aware that the federal government is actually run by a group of uh, unfireable uh, senior administrators called the Senior Executive Service. They actually have their own flag, by the way, um, the SES, uh, and um, they they run the government. That That is the honest truth of it. Uh, the politicians don't. If anybody that has ever seen Yes Minister, uh, the UK broadcast, will understand the way things are. Um, the the uh, administrative state does, in fact, run the government. And uh, SES is the, uh, um, the dukes and duchesses of uh, the administrative state, uh, together with the intelligence community, of course. And... Uh, um, uh, they and and Mr. Trump uh, finally, you know, he was a little slow in the uptake. He thought things were going to be a lot easier. He could just fire people. Remember, you're fired. That was his brand. Um, he, he came to the federal government. You're fired, and everybody says, "No, I'm not." <laughs> and and so it took him basically the whole administrative term to get this uh, Schedule F, where he would re- the the strategy was that he would reclassify all these federal employees as non-exempt uh, and that, and put them into a new employment schedule called Schedule F. And uh, that had to work its way through the courts. It, it, it's fun fact, it takes at least two years of court action typically to fire a federal employee. Good to know. Um, and just like, here's, here's one for you, Jay. 
it takes five years from concept uh, in on average from from concept to uh, issuing a request for proposal from NIH it takes five years. Um, so that's that's our government in action. Uh, and um, Trump finally got this through uh, all of the bureaucratic and administrative law hurdles. And then he lost the election. And literally the first action that Mr. Biden took was to rescind Trump's order on Schedule F. The, the, the reason why the Supreme Court appointments were made that were made is that they were basically experts in administrative law. They, they're, the ones that were put in place by Trump were put in place um, as part of a long-term strategy to break the back of the administrative state. If we can't break the back of the administrative state, which is a self-perpetuating um, uh, entity, you know, we call it Leviathan, right, citing uh, the original literature talking about this, about the growth of bureaucracies, um, it, it, it has already basically consumed uh, the United States federal government. Um, and so, in the so book, you're, we you're, talk you're about the history about of that. It's, it's, it's really interesting, Robert, because, like, you're talking about this – uh, I'm, I was thinking about scientific reform, like how do you how do you reform the NIH? No, it's the way CDC. way way beyond that. Right, you're talking about this at a at a at a, at a like almost a this, a, this a, is know, all of government the, level. Right? It's, it's all it's, of government. It's major government systems. It's it's uh, we we have to reform uh, the administrative state uh, because otherwise, what we have is a self perpetuating bureaucracy. And by the way, it's not just the bureaucrats. It is absolutely the intelligence community. The people behind you, – if, if I'm going to – you know, I don't know. Maybe, Jay, I'm going to blow your mind. Um, IT you is basically – IT, as, we, as you know it there in Silicon Valley, is basically a creature of the intelligence community. It was largely funded by the IC. Much of it is basically um, uh, CIA and, and – you know all the associated federal agencies and uh, the the uh, intelligence community. We refer to it broadly, and that's why you're seeing in the artifacts, in the court case, and in the Twitter files that you're seeing, is because basically the intelligence community, together with the administrative state, is a self-perpetuating entity that exists in parallel to uh, um the obligations of the federal government to serve uh, the electorate. The, the service to the electorate is no longer the primary objective of the federal government. It is service and perpetuation of the administrative state and the rights and prerogatives of the intelligence community and the alliances that they've created all over the world, including the Five Eyes Alliance, which is why you saw this lockstep behavior between New Zealand, Great Britain, the United States, um, Canada, uh, uh, in Australia um, through the COVID crisis. That's the Five Eyes Alliance, okay? There was, as you probably know, Jay, there was agreements issued between the United States government and the British government through the intelligence community. And by the way, it's MI5 that edits Wikipedia. Um, and, you know, the, the specific person that was editing my wiki pages is a known um, sock puppet for MI5, okay? And the way that works is that MI5... MI6 can do stuff to American citizens that they can't do to their own citizens, and our intelligence community can do stuff 
to the Brits and the Germans and the Aussies and the Canadians that they can't do to American citizens. And they all have a reciprocal relationship, so it doesn't matter. They do whatever they want to do. They run the bloody world. Okay, that, I mean, you go, like when I was spending a lot of time with the Italians, um, they, they say so, flat so, out, so Robert, Italy has no I, operational latitude. They are run by Brussels so, this, and the American intelligence community. This diagnosis that you're offering, um, what it, the, the, the plan of action to reform it then is a, is a primarily a political one. Absolutely. I don't think the scientific one. Peter Marx is an artifact. Rochelle Walensky is an artifact. There, you can always find people that will do the bidding of power. Okay? Um, and, and clearly we have seen that. Uh, um, it, it's, it, they, 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 they're, there are always people willing to come to some internal compromise about what the rest of us might think is fundamental ethical principles. In the, they can always find some way to justify their actions as for the greater good. And that's, that's basically it all comes down to utilitarianism argument. That in, okay, so, as, as was made, the argument that was made at Hoover by Obama, that we have to have censorship to preserve, quote, democracy. Okay? That's a utilitarian argument made in what used to be the beating heart of conservatism in America. Okay. Um, And uh, that 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 argument has won the day now. Okay, so so I'm going to I'm going to hold you to something you just said before, Robert, and I want you. So we're going to end the conversation this way. You said you like to end your lectures with some hope. And so tell us, give us give us some hope, because I have some ideas uh, about about the kinds of reforms I have. But but I don't think I have power over all of government. Um, but I, I, this is your conversation. I want you to. I want you to have the last word on this. How? How? Uh, give Give us some hope. What What kind of vision for the future can you, do you see? What kind of program reform can you see so that our our lib, li, liberal republic, our, our our ideas of what's how science should operate, you know, for the good of the public, how our regulatory body should operate to to make sure that the that the uh, products that are that are used by by by, by the citizens of the world are are, are actually safe and effective and and, uh, and 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 good. Um, how how can we get back to that, Robert? And and end our conversation on on a bit of hope. Okay, and first I want to start with framing it up a little bit more. It, we used the United States used to be considered to be the paragon, the beacon, the lighthouse for the world for pharmaceutical safety, for purity. Um, potency, uh, adulteration, oversight, okay, and and regulatory scrutiny, and what has as as somebody as you have has who's been traveling internationally all the way through this, I can tell you that that is no longer an American advantage. We are now in a situation, and, and by contrast, uh, the People's Republic of China and the Indian government were perceived as relatively corrupt, excellent sources for uh, pharmaceutical supply chain and finished product. So precursors and finished product, both for biologics and drugs. The advantage of the United States as uh, the paragon of integrity in uh, pharmaceuticals and biologics is gone. We have lost that competitive advantage. There is no longer any reason for anyone in the world 
to not go to India, particularly for biologics, and China. We, we, in our actions over the last three years, we have basically conceded a major industrial sector to, you know, we can argue about, you know, is, is India, I think India is kind of a frenemy. China, I argue, is a full-on competitor, enemy. And we have conceded a major industry to those two nation states and their economies through the malfeasance that's occurred within the FDA and the CDC. The world no longer sees us as a paragon of integrity in pharmaceutical regulation. They see us as incredibly corrupt, which is no different from Italy or China or, or you know, I argue that the uh, having, having had to dive into the regulatory documents for vaccines for India— for a client earlier on in this, the company was called Reliance. Um, Rav may know what Reliance is. Um, uh, you know, owned by one of the richest men in the world, former uh, one of the senior people at the WEF, um, named Ambani, uh, who made all his money off of Russian oil. So, in any case, uh, in India, by my reading, the regulations, the statutes, the guidance for vaccine safety and regulation and approval is more rigorous than it is at the FDA. That's where we're at. Okay. Now, what is the, what is the, um, better future coming? Uh, it, it is, it is, uh, believed to be best practice in the government that if you want to replace an agency or an entity, you first have to build a parallel structure before you tear down the first one. Okay, so the standard teaching and practice in government, this is one of the reasons why it grows the way it does, is that we are going to have to build parallel agencies, which I argue must be divorced from the dual agency status, which is rampant. If you think back, FAA, what did we learn about FAA with uh, the Supermax disaster with Boeing? The FAA is corrupt. It's captured. Okay. What have we learned about U.S. Department of Agriculture? It has had a former head of a former senior official from Monsanto running the USDA for decades now. Okay, it is totally regulatory capture. We've seen the CDC and the FDA are embody uh, regulatory capture. They personify it. Okay, and one of the key issues here is that they have dual function. All of these agencies share the common problem of both being an advocate for the industry and a regulator for the industry. And for some reason, I'm being a little bit facetious, uh, more than a little bit, uh, the advocacy for the interests of the, of the industry always seems to supersede the regulatory oversight for the industry. It gets bigger budgets, more emphasis, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so this is just one, there's, and we talk in the book, there's a myriad of different ways that regulatory capture manifests itself, and the revolving door is clearly one of them. It's a very difficult one to figure out how to fix because you essentially have to um, create a, you know, it's, it's hard to think about how to, fixing, how to fix the revolving door without putting in place employment restrictions uh, in terms of what someone can practice once they leave the government. Now, one solution would be you pay people well enough in the, when they're in the government that uh, they don't necessarily want to leave. They don't want to just you know spend their time there. Like, for instance, the Patent and Trademark Office is notorious for this. Lawyers go to the PTO, spend their three to five years, and then they leave, and then they've got all the contacts at the PTO so they can get patents through for their new clients. It's, it works the same way all the way through the government. 
Okay. And uh, we've somehow we got to fix the revolving door. Um, in terms of FDA and CDC, because that's our focus, you and me, and it's and it's the audience's focus in terms of what we've experienced here. And you're you're hearing now that I'm arguing that that is just a one manifestation of a much much broader problem that has been b- baked in and long existing. Okay, but in terms of those two agencies, it's you know I've heard people say everybody below above GS thirteen has got to be fired. You got to move people up. And just clean house. And we talked about this going to be really hard to do unless you put in something like Schedule F, because you can't just go around firing people in the federal government because they got all kinds of protections uh, from that. And and like I said, it's usually a two year protracted legal battle to terminate anybody in the federal government. So it's it's going to be tough. And uh, um, one, you know, there's the whole logic of defunding. But. uh if if this is this is a case uh, where potentially we're going to be cutting off our nose to spite our face. I mean, the um, thing is, I, th- I feel like the FDA does do essential job because it is a, is it, I don't want the government well, not by to the do way, that. They haven't been in the bloody office all the way through. They've all been working from home. I've heard again and again people going to drop off IND packages at the FDA, and the only people there are the bloody security guards. I mean, it's, it is and shocking you know, like what's been going on. The CDC, but, but, even, but the point is, like, I, I think these are they have they do, they have functions that they're supposed to do that I believe are important functions. They're just not doing as them do, well, as, as do we reason. all, or doing them yeah. at all. Yeah, and and the, the I mean, think about how this. The, there's some key things that were put in place using very strategic logic that was very convenient for the industry, and one was. Basically, well, why should the taxpayer have to pay for the cost of providing regulatory oversight that the pharmaceutical industry benefits from? Oh, well, let's release the burden, this terrible burden on the taxpayer of funding the FDA, and we'll force pharma to fund the FDA. And, of course, that, you know, I'm sorry, it comes back to, for me, many of my metaphors have to do with uh uh, the old Song of the South stories and uh, Br'er Rabbit. This is a case of Br'er Rabbit saying, "Oh, please don't throw me in that briar patch," um, and uh, you know, and and Br'er Wolf throws him the briar patch, and Br'er Rabbit says, "Ha ha! This is where I was born. I'm glad to be in the briar patch. I know how to live here." Same with Pharma. Okay, so Pharma says, "Oh, oh, poor, poor taxpayer. You shouldn't have to fund this. It's such a burden." You know, they say this through their surrogates. And uh, we should be we should have to pay the fee. And what that did is it converted most of the FDA to becoming employees of the pharmaceutical right. this, industry. This is the Prescription Drug User Fee Act of like, what is it, like 1992 or something. And another key thing, another key thing that was done under Teddy Kennedy, OK, was that a deal was cooked to make it so that we wouldn't regulate pharmaceutical pricing and we would allow um uh, unrestricted advertising on television of pharmaceuticals, which is absolutely not allowed. And as a consequence, because the industry generates so much revenue out of the United States, they have basically purchased uh, the um, objectivity of corporate media. And um, that's, that is by intent. Okay. Pharma is anybody that's worked with pharma, their marketing departments are incredibly aggressive they will look they they intentionally look for where the boundaries are and figure out ways to get around them that's what they do 
okay? And they have figured out that they're not buying advertising. When they, when they sponsored brought to you by Pfizer, okay, they're not buying advertising. They are buying networks, okay? Um, those, those major corporate news networks would not be able to survive in the modern media environment unless they had the subsidies from the federal government and from the pharmaceutical industry. That is what's keeping them alive. That's why so, they so act as, as basically marketing arms for pharma, because they are. So, so let, me, let, me, let me just reiterate to make sure I, I understand the program you have in mind. The program you have in mind is, uh, one, to, to, uh, allow, uh, to put in this Schedule F reform where, whereby pol- there would be more political oversight of the administrative agencies. Uh, that's essentially what we're, what we're talking about, so that people at the top of those agencies face and, some— And the administrative state has got to be shrunk— and Congress to, must be forced. Sh- Congress must be forced to assume their constitutional role. What they have done is they have delegated their role to the administrative state. And this is what you know. People got so bent out of shape about the overturning of Roe versus Wade and EPA versus uh, West Virginia. Okay, both of those okay. cases were seminal because they made the point that it is illegal for administrative agencies to make law. So, so to, so to, uh, to, to, to use that power to essentially to, 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 uh, to, to cut the relationship, this, this revolving door relationship between the, the regulatory agencies and industry. Right, so like if you're if you're if you're seen as as, as and, using and your power, three, with three these these agencies can no longer have dual roles. If we're going to have entities within the federal government to advocate for American industry, whatever the sector is, it has to be separated completely. Major, not a Chinese firewall, a major firewall, organizationally between the the um, oversight function and the advocacy function they cannot right. exist within the same agency under the same command chain so so for instance like if you have someone like uh, tony fauci that that funds a huge amount of scientific work and the you know social status of scientists frankly within the scientific community um they're not they're not being allowed to be policy making role they just they just sit and fund science did you here so, so this we were the ones that disclosed this first Tony Fauci had over 57 FTE managing the press for him, for NIAID. Okay, that's not just for NIH. That's for <laughs> Tony Fauci at NIAID had a 57-person no press No wonder he office. got such good press. He had, he had about 12 people to manage relationships with the Hill. That okay. shows the relative. Uh, okay, so, so these guys should absolutely not be in a policy position. Um, and, and, go ahead. Yeah, so I'm just going to say f- four. Part of this is that is, – this is just picking up what you said, Robert so, – is, is the funding of public activities, fundamentally public activities, you know, like the FDA or the CDC, should be divorced from – uh, private sources. So, for instance, the the prescription drug user free act needs to be repealed. The, FDA the foundation for CDC it. and the NIH foundation, the foundation need to be gotten CDC. rid of. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Okay. I mean, I th- I'm, 
All right. So, so uh, what else? So, so those those are those are the four I heard. I, I mean, those are a practical political program. Like you could you could make a. I mean, I I think uh, I think I've heard Robert F. Kennedy Jr. say something very similar to this. Maybe it's not an accident. I've heard I've heard uh, <laughs> yeah. other uh, like uh, Ron DeSantis try to uh, move in these lines. These these could be a quite a popular political program. I would think. Uh, one would think, but absolute suicide for those who. Um, uh, that those types of policy positions evoke an extremely strong reaction from the existing administrative state infrastructure. They they fight violently. Um, they act through every channel they can to resist any type of controls being put on them. They are out of control. Absolutely. Now, there's a bunch of other things that we talk about in the book in terms of nitty gritties. Um, the, the revolving door is a key one. Another key one that's close to home for you, Jay, that I believe we were going to talk a little bit about what's happened to the academy. What the heck happened to uh, academe? It just, it's, it's acted like a, you know, like it's been bought um, all the way through this, because it has. And one of the ways that it was bought is the Bayh-Dole Act. And the Bayh-Dole Act was put in place ostensibly for all the best reasons, because basically academics were creating all this intellectual property, and they were never filing on it, because <clears throat> back in the day, the quickest way to lose your professorship was to be seen as in bed with industry and too focused on industrial issues and not being a pure academic. That was, that was like um, you know the third rail. Uh, you would get the, run out on a rail with tars and feathers. That's absolutely Robert. Like that's that's the the view I I've lived under. Like I I've not worked. Right. That's because you're old school. Okay. Yeah. You're old school. Okay. But with the Buy Dole Act, which made it so that there's a financial incentive for deans, and department chairs, and full professors all the way down the food chain. And by the way, they then broadened it to extend it to federal employees. What it put in place was an incentive structure, financial incentive structure, for filing patents and prosecuting intellectual property. And all these universities had to set up their own tech transfer offices, et cetera, et cetera. And then the universities figured out, holy moly, we can make a boatload of money on tech transfer from all this intellectual property coming out of the professors. And the department chair said, holy moly. We can make a whole bunch of money off of this. And the dean said, holy moly, we can make a whole bunch of money off of this. Because typically universities get a um, royalty rate that is substantial off of this. And then by law through the Bayh-Dole Act, that flows down to about 30 to 40 percent of the proceeds actually get distributed at the level of the department chair and the individual investigator that's the co-inventor. Now, that can turn into huge money. And so then you ended up with a situation where you had these superstars on campus that, you know, they're no longer, you know, cruising along at, you know, ooh, if I make full professor, I might make $180,000 a year. Woo, woo, woo. Um, and now you got guys that are pulling in tens of millions of dollars a year from their royalty checks. And by the way, their deans treat them like they walk on water because if they're pulling in you know tens of millions of dollars that means the dean's pulling in tens of millions of dollars because he gets part of the cut and the consequence of this has been a complete corruption 
of academe in support of industry. That's the, that's the ticket, right? You know how it is. I was a soft money professor my whole life as an academic, and I can tell you that, that is I, a wicked position. You're on soft money. I feel sorry yeah. for you, my friend, because it is indentured <laughs> servitude. You, it is worse than being a small businessman. It's a small businessman that has a tax from their dean and their department chair and basically has to, to genuflect and do what they're told. And but if you run out of money, uh, good luck on that. Uh, you yeah, know, I mean, <laughs> the thing is, I, I, like through my career, I've been lucky that I've been, I've found uh, pl- sources of of, of support. Uh, uh, you know, like like I said, I work with the FDA on vaccine safety. I think the statistics of that, because of this, you know, sort of a, a false yeah, discovery rate you found thing, is really interesting. Yeah, you yeah, found so it was a really, niche. It was worthwhile. So, and, and I do have policy. So, yeah. So, but 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 I could I could be independent of of a lot of this because I just if I didn't get one funding source, I would just move to some other yeah, other because project. you were pulling in the indirects, okay? Yeah. And I guarantee, if you weren't pulling in the indirects, uh, Stanford University full professorship would not be your uh, um, subtext. Yeah. You, no, you would be you, you would be a, a lecture at uh, the Marin College yeah. in biostatistics, right? Right. So I I, I, I mean I, I agree with you about the the the, the fundamental um, problems of the university, especially the, within the medical realm. The the issue well, is but like my point. My point is that it's the Bay Dole Act that transformed academe into an engine of industry and totally corrupted the whole particularly biotechnology and other tech-related areas. Hmm. Okay, so why don't we leave it at that? We, we covered a lot of ground, Robert, and you've been incredibly generous with your time, um, uh, and which, for which I'm in tr- tremendously grateful. Uh, and maybe, you know, I think we, we, we probably could go on for, for uh, dozens and dozens of hours. I have never had a so. podcast interviewer who is an academic, and let alone of your stature. So I'm grateful for just having had a, a partner in this discussion that uh, allows us to explore these other areas that I've never had an opportunity to explore. I mean, I think, I, and I hope the audience has gained something from this, this conversation as well. Um, thank you, Robert. Thank you for what you've done during the pandemic for, for, for cho- you know, choosing to speak up when you could have you probably let a quiet, happy. I know Pro- you enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> a sane person would have said, hmm, ethics or stable life. I choose stable life. <laughs> well, I've, I've, I've joined you in that same insanity. I, 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 could, have, I, could, have kept, I could have kept quiet. Uh, and, Rav, thank you for, uh, for hosting this and for uh, putting all of the little pieces together that I know you're going to have to do given the, the difficulty in, in uh, the technical difficulties we've had. Yeah, yeah, it's been great to watch you guys. It's been very illuminating. It's it's been an education in some ways, um, hearing you guys talk. And I'd love to continue the conversation. It sounds like you guys have a lot of great rapport. So uh, hopefully we can uh, do this again and uh, go deeper into some of these very important questions. Well, uh, be good all. Um, you you wanted a you wanted a positive thing. The the positive close for me is the way out of the woods is self-reliance. It's intentional communities. It's building community. It's respecting integrity. It's respecting autonomy. 
It's respecting each other as human beings. Um, if, if we can regain our humanity in, in a commitment to fundamental ethics, and we may have to build it small and build it out, um, I think we can get out of this, and I think we can, we can help enable a better future for our children, but it's not going to be easy. Thank you, Robert. Mm, great message. Thanks, Robert. Thanks, Jay. Okay. Thank you, guys.